it's a it's a very much a collaborative model, and it's a new way of doing journalism because traditionally, as uh, you know, most investigative reporters are lone wolves, and we don't like to share information, you know, even with our colleagues or with our editors. Here, it's turning all that that model upside down and saying, when you find something, share it with your with your colleagues, and the end result will be better if you do this. Hi, you're with Bill Bernbauer, the CEO of Democracy's Watchdogs. Back in the late 1980s, when I was the chief of staff at the Age newspaper, I was told there was a reporter from Ireland who wanted to see me. Well, here to wait, I was flat chat on the news desk. When I finally met him, he told me he'd been in the country a couple of days and wanted a job. Now, journalism jobs are hard to come by, as anyone who's tried well knows. But he persisted, insisting that he was the real deal. I told him he wouldn't know his way around town. He'd even have trouble finding the Burke Street Mall. He said he'd find it and would beat any other journalist on the story. It so happened we were short-staffed at the time, and long story short, I put Gerard Ryle on for a week. That became two weeks, then months, and finally full-time. He went on to become an award-winning investigative reporter, and in 2011, he was appointed director of the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. Since then, under his watch, the consortium has won dozens of awards, including the most prestigious, the Pulitzer Prize. Its projects include the Panama Papers, the Paradise Papers, and many more involving global collaborations between dozens of media organisations and hundreds of journalists. I was thrilled to host this interview with Gerard Ryle. I'm sure you will like it. Thanks for listening. Well, it's a story that's made headlines around the world. A massive leak of information on offshore tax havens. We're a um, network of journalists around the world. We have um, more than 230 journalists from more than 80 different countries. And we all come together to work on stories. Um, We're also a journalism outfit in its own right. We find stories and then we bring those stories to major media companies around the world, like New York Times, Le Monde, uh, The Guardian, and also smaller outlets. And in return for giving them the story, they give us their journalists. And for us, that works very well because not only do we get the best investigative reporters working on a story, but we also guarantee publication at the end of the project. You're the director. What do you do day to day? Well, day to day, I suppose I spend about half of my time trying to raise money to keep it all going because we are a non-profit and we give everything we do away for free. The rest of the time is spent trying to do journalism, you know, trying to be an investigative reporter. The reason I wanted to do it in the first place was that I felt that I didn't have the time any longer. I was working for Fairfax for 19 years and it got to the point where, you know, you did not have time to do long form investigative reporting. And this was a way of me continuing to do that in the modern world. The Panama Papers is probably the most recent famous story you've done. Can you tell us a bit about how that came about? Well, it came about through a series of previous stories. We started looking at the offshore world um, pretty early on when I went over. I took over ICIJ in 2011. And we started working on on the offshore world then. And we started, uh, our first big hit was Offshore Leaks, which was, uh, again, a leaked 
a set of information from an offshore service provider. In Australia, investigative journalist Gerard Ryle had worked his way up through newsrooms there over two decades. He had been working on stories involving offshore tax havens when one day a confidential source told him he'd receive a special package. There was a, you know, a hard drive inside, this old-fashioned thing. <laughs> I didn't know what it was. The hard drive was filled with unorganized random emails, financial documents and invoices involving people from around the world. So much information, he couldn't make sense of what he was seeing. So I know that it's a potential gold mine, but I don't actually know what I'm looking at. I'm not sure how valuable it is. And I know that we've got to, at that point, sit down and spend a lot of time researching and, and seeing who these who these people are and, and what it is I have. From the bits and pieces he could see, Ryle could at least tell that the data was from offshore tax havens, firms in tiny countries that offer lockdown secrecy for those who want to hide their money. Heading into his new job as head of the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, Raoul brought with him his bag with the drive. At ICIJ, he found a small team that helped him make the data readable and searchable. I can get Russia ready. I showed um, the data to some, you know, very well-respected reporters in D.C., American reporters, and some of the reactions I got, you know, shocked me. I mean, they, they, they looked at it and they just thought, well, it's clearly stolen material, I don't want anything to do with it, or they'd say, I just don't know how to read this, this is going to take too long. In the end, the reporters came on board. The team coordinated with journalists in 46 countries, all different time zones, languages, and social and political environments. And then that just triggered a series of other stories. We, we then went on to do stories on, on China and revealing the offshore links to the Chinese elite. We, we did a story on Luxembourg as a tax haven. We managed to get a hold of a bunch of documents from the HSBC Bank in Switzerland, and we exposed that. And eventually that led to the Panama Papers, which came about through our German media partner, Süddeutsche Zeitung. Well, what are the Panama Papers? Well, there are about um, 11 and a half million documents from a law firm in Panama called Mossack Fonseca. And someone had copied almost 40 years of records of this law firm and handed them over to the Germans, who then handed them over to ICIJ. And what we did is we shared them among almost 400 journalists from more than 80 different countries. And we all went to work together. How do you do that? How do you share 11 million documents? We're kind of what we're doing at ICIJ is trying to reinvent journalism using the very thing that has sort of attacked the business model of journalism. I mean, journalism at the moment is under a lot of pressure from a business point of view because the business model that has sustained journalism is now broken, the advertising model. And, and that has been caused by the internet. So what we're trying to do is, you know, basically use the technology that's killing journalism to reinvent journalism. And, and we're able to share 11 and a half million records by using servers, by putting everything up into the cloud. And we're able to bring journalists together to work together by building an, a virtual newsroom so that these journalists can go into this virtual newsroom um, from anywhere in the world, from Brazil, from, from Argentina, from, from France, from anywhere. So as they go into their physical newsroom every day, they're also in the ICIJ virtual newsroom. 
and there they can exchange information. Um, when they're looking at document sets like the Panama Papers, they share their findings. It's a bit like coming in and having 400 colleagues instead of you know, the usual I team of like one or two or three. It's a unique model. Yeah, it's a it's a collab very much a collaborative model, and it's a new way of doing journalism because traditionally, as uh, you know, most investigative reporters are lone wolves, and we don't like to share information, you know, even with our colleagues or with our editors. Here, it's turning all that that model upside down and saying, when you find something, share it with your with your colleagues, and the end result will be better if you do this. Offshore leaks made front page news. The UK, the US, Switzerland, China, Russia. It sparked official investigations in the Philippines, Greece and India and prompted the French president to call for an eradication of tax havens. So rather than being lone wolves, they've joined the wolf pack. Yeah, yeah, we are essentially a wolf pack, and it's a global wolf pack. But it's also tackling uh, different, you know, stories in a different way. I mean, most stories that are important these days are global stories. When you're chasing, for instance, uh, the offshore world, you know, it, uh, the story doesn't stop at a border. So it doesn't stop when you leave Australia. It actually goes to the British Virgin Islands and maybe the Cayman Islands. It might go to London. It might go to the to New York, and then back to Australia again. So to really cover these stories. This is, a, this is a smart way of doing it because you're able to tap into local knowledge. 400 journalists working for, what, a year? Um, the temptation to scoop the wolf pack must be pretty phenomenal, but that didn't happen. Yeah, we made everyone sign an agreement when they, when they came onto the project. We made them sign an agreement that we would require them to do two things. One, if they found something important in their country, they would need to share it with everybody. And the second was the essential one, is that ICIJ decides when we publish. Now, we do that in consultation with the reporters, but it's a, it's a very firm agreement. And they know that if they breach that agreement, that we will never invite them back for another project. But you're right. I mean, it's very tempting. You know, um, you know while we were investigating the Panama Papers, there were these huge stories that were breaking around the world that we had documents on that, that really could have given these reporters an edge. You know, we had a, uh, an election in Argentina and we had a lot of information about the two candidates that were going for that, you know. At one point, the FBI began to indict all these people in FIFA, you know, which is the world soccer body. We had a lot of that information. We probably had more information than the FBI. And so the temptation for the journalists would have been great. But at the end of the day, they knew that if we all published together, we'd get a bigger bang for our buck. What was the impact of the uh, Panama Papers? Um, well, the impact continues on though, almost three and a half years later. I mean, the most dramatic impact was almost immediate. Um, one of the names in the Panama Papers was, was the Prime Minister of Iceland. And what we had found is that he had a secret offshore company that held shares and financial interests in banks. And he'd been elected in Iceland to sort out the financial crisis caused by the banking collapse. So here he was, we were able to show that he had a financial interest in, in the banks at a time when he was deciding who would get compensation. And so very dramatic scenes in Iceland after we published. The people of Iceland, they surrounded the parliament there. They, they threw yogurt and bananas at the parliament building uh, until he resigned. He was, um, he was out of office within 24 hours. We had uh, protests, public protests in Britain, which um, caused uh, David Cameron 
quite a lot of uh, trouble. Um, he flip-flopped for five days on the story, so every single day there was a new headline in, in, in the UK. Some say it's why he had to resign. It's also, some say, um, it's why Brexit happened. And then Pakistan was another country that you would not expect journalism to have an effect. But in Pakistan, there was um, public protests for almost a year and court cases, and eventually the Prime Minister of Pakistan was forced to resign after being found guilty of corruption, and he's now still in jail. One thing we do at ICIJ, and I should point this out, is that when we get big leaks of information like this, we make the basic information public, so the names of the people that we're seeing, their offshore companies and their addresses. And tax offices have used that information to recoup now almost $1.2 billion around the world from people who had been avoiding their taxes. So we're very popular with tax offices. I'm interested in the technology because the papers involved PDFs, uh, reports, minutes, emails. How do you sort that? Yeah, look, it's a new way of doing journalism. It's using technology in a way that we should have, I feel we should have been doing for a long time. I think journalists were scared of technology instead of embracing it. You know, we are using machine learning to, to, to look at big document sets. I mean, the way I see it is that our current challenge as journalists is really sifting through information, whereas I think when we started our careers, probably you and I, the challenge was finding a bit of information. Now. You're, you know, you're, you're in a, an era of information where whistleblowers can copy vast amounts of information and then provide that information to journalists. So your challenge is to sift through and to see you know, what's important and what isn't important in that. Now in the Panama Papers, there were a lot of documents that were very private. There were people's bank account details, there were people's passport records and other things that I would think should still remain and do remain mm. private. But it was sifting through the dross, I guess, to get to the important things. They, I think we found like 120 different politicians, and including more than a dozen world leaders. And that was important because that was publicly, you know, of public interest, mm. I would strongly argue. So the consortium is um, funded, what, by philanthropists? Or where do you get your funding from? Yeah, we rely entirely on foundations and individuals to fund us. So everything we do, we do for free. We have to raise about $5 million a year to keep going. We're a registered charity in the US. We're basically based there. It also allows us to do journalism that may not be allowed to be done in other countries. So again, in another way, it's a new era for journalism because you're able to avoid laws in, in individual countries. So we're able to publish stories, for instance, in the Panama Papers that would not have been able to be published in Germany, and it was the Germans that gave us the documents in the first place. Mm. You know, or you might have a situation where a reporter finds something that they would not be able to publish in their own country. So they come to ICIJ, we publish the story, and then often in, in, they actually report on their own story, um, but no one knows that they're doing that. Are some of the journalists in, um, endangered by having access to ICIJ material in terms of what they're publishing? Yeah, I mean, a number of journalists actually lost their job as a result of working with us um, because of the controversy in their own countries. So, I mean, you know, press freedom is a big issue around the world. Um, in the Panama Papers case, for instance, we had several reporters who had to leave their country just bef you know, before publication so that they wouldn't get caught up in any retaliation that would happen. And how does one become a member of the ICIJ? 
Um, look, it's, it's, a, it's a, a membership uh, by invitation only. We look at the best investigative reporters around the world, not just the best, but the people that are willing to be collaborators, good collaborators, because we really want people that are going to put the work into the story. It's not about us just finding a great story and then giving it to the reporter. It's a two-way thing. They've got to do a lot of work. We have to do a lot of work together as a collaboration to get that story over the line. I'll give you an example there. I mean, when we first saw the Icelandic Prime Minister, it was pretty much on day one, because we, we saw the name, we knew he was Prime Minister of Iceland, and we knew he had an offshore company. But there was an awful lot of work that needed to go into that story to make it a story. Um, a reporter who literally took nine months out of his life to do this and disappeared from society for nine months because he, it was a big story. And he was the one who put the pieces together. He found the conflict of interest. Um, with the prime, you know, he was the one who had actually turned it from being an interesting piece of information into a you know major international story. Apart from tax havens, you've done some other topics. Uh, can you just name a few of those? So we've done recent stories on the World Bank. We've looked at how their um, policies displace people around the world. In fact, millions of people have been displaced by World Bank projects despite the fact that the World Bank says that um, they have a good policy in place to prevent this happening. You know, whole villages have been moved for coal mines and no one stops to think about the poor people that have been moved. And we recently did a, a series of stories, um, our latest, latest story was actually about um, medical devices around the world and the lack of regulation of medical devices. And that involved, again, more than 200 reporters filing freedom information requests around the world. We were able to gather almost 8 million records from publicly available sources on medical devices. And we found, in fact, that there were more than a million people who had been killed or injured by medical devices. And that has led to huge reform. We've almost had, I think, changes in laws in five different countries. One of the products we zeroed in on was a you know, textured breast implants of women. Women had been complaining for years that these um, breast implants were giving them a rare form of cancer. Um, doctors were dismissing their complaints. Um, those products have now been withdrawn worldwide. And how does your current role compare with, you know, being an investigative reporter solo uh, it's, it's a totally different experience now, but the same principles apply. I mean, it's the same, you know, when you go around the world, it's the same basic skills you need to have. It's, it's having a nose for a story, it's, you know, finding out information and then putting context around it and being prepared to put the context around, it, not just accepting, say, a document on face value and looking for a cheap headline, it's you know, the same skills apply. And, you know, I've also, you know, and I'm not just saying this, I mean, you learn a lot from other reporters and you realize how little you really knew, even though you've been doing this job for 20 years, you just get the smartest, um, most accomplished investigative reporters in the world in a team. Uh, it's pretty humbling. Hi, it's Bill Bernbauer back with you. If you enjoyed that podcast and want to hear more interviews with top investigative journalists, go to democracieswatchdogs.org and locate the podcasts tab. On the site, you can watch video interviews with all the journalists featured in these podcasts. You can subscribe to our podcast and also to our newsletter for alerts about forthcoming interviews and our latest news. And please help us produce more interviews by supporting our work. As a registered non-profit organisation, we depend entirely on your support. Just go to democracieswatchdogs.org, press the donate button and give us whatever you can afford. Every bit helps, 
it all goes into production and is greatly appreciated. Thanks for listening and bye for now.